Hey everyone, so despite the weird events that went on over the last week and my somewhat realistic fear that I might end up somewhere around Donetsk um, by today, I will be presenting the Consumer Rights Act 2015, so yay on that. Hopefully I'll be able to post another video next week too, that would be nice. So, what does the Consumer Rights Act actually cover? The Act is designed to protect consumers when they're buying goods or services from traders. Section 2 of the Act defines a consumer as being a person wholly or mainly acting outside their trade, business or profession. And a trader is a person who is acting in one of these capacities. If a trader is wishing to rely on the act not being applicable because the other person is not a consumer, then they must bear the burden of proving it. It's not for the alleged consumer to prove that they are a consumer. It's for the person who's acting in the course of their trade to prove that they're not a consumer. A person, however, isn't a consumer if second-hand goods are sold at auction and they have the opportunity of attending that auction. It's a pretty rare circumstance, but one I felt it would probably be good to include just for the sake of completeness. Also, water, gas, and electricity are treated as goods by the Act if they are for supply in a limited volume or set quantity. They're not goods in the abstract uh, in general. They're just goods when a specified amount of them is being supplied. So, I'm not going to go through every single section, just the ones that I think are the most important, starting with section 9, that the goods must be of satisfactory quality. Where the goods are supplied, it's implied within the contract that a term of the contract will be that the goods will be of satisfactory quality in the opinion of a reasonable person who takes into account the price a consumer pays, any description of them given, and any public statements made by the trader, producer, or representative of a trader or producer regarding the goods and their characteristics. That includes advertising. There is a thing called advertising puff, which isn't to be taken seriously. But obviously, if you're going to enter into a trade, do bear in mind that if you make an outlandish claim, hoping to rely on it being just a puff rather than an actual uh, description, you might fall foul of this provision. And a statement made on a label can also affect what would be deemed satisfactory quality of a goods. The quality of a good would also include things such as if the fit for the purpose of such goods are usually supplied. So obviously for a pen, it can not be fit for purpose if a pen can't write because it's kind of the entire point of having a pen but it includes uh, non-essential uses but standard uses of the goods in question their appearance and finish where relevant whether they are free of minor defects their safety, obviously the more unsafe they are, the less likely 
they're going to be considered satisfactory and their durability. Something which breaks down quickly isn't going to satisfy a consumer, obviously. If the consumer is made aware of any defects prior to the contract being formed, however, or they were given the opportunity to examine the goods in a manner that would reasonably disclose a defect, then the quality should be treated as excluding any defects which were or ought to have been disclosed to the consumer. Section 10, the goods are to be fit for purpose. If the consumer makes known, sorry, that should be, if the trader makes known to the consumer, implicitly or explicitly, a purpose for which he intends to use the goods, and a contract is treated as containing a term that the goods will be reasonably fit for that purpose. So, if um, the consumer is going to be using it for a non-standard use, but one that the trader knows or believes that the goods would be capable of uh, performing, and they tell them so, it would be an implied term of a contract that they are fit for that specific purpose. And therefore, it would break section 10 if the trader says that the goods are fit for that purpose, when in fact they are not. However, this doesn't apply if the consumer doesn't rely upon the trader's skill or judgment when disclosing if it's fit for purpose, or it is unreasonable for them to do so. Obviously, a lot of the time you would expect that the trader, because they're acting in the course of their trade, will be in a much better position and will know a lot better if something is fit for purpose. But it does have this as a little bit of wiggle room in case the use is something so out there that you can't expect the trader to know if it is fit for that purpose. Section 11, if a description of goods are given, they should be as they are described. So, if the goods are supplied by description, the contract is deemed to contain a term that the goods supplied will conform to the description given. While the goods are supplied by sample and description, it's important it has to be sample and description, the goods must still match the description it's irrelevant if the bulk of the goods match the sample if they don't also match the description. They might pass the goods requirement to be in accordance with a sample, but if they're by sample and description, it has to be both. Because if it's not as described, then it breaches section 11. Goods can, however, still be sold by description even if they are exposed for supply by the trader and selected by the consumer. So if they give a generic description that the goods have, but they leave it up to the consumer to select the goods, that's still a sale by description. Section 13 states that goods are to match a sample if a sample is provided to the consumer. Section 14 says, pretty much the same for a model but I'll move I'll explain that a bit better soon while the contract is made by reference to a sample previously seen or examined by the consumer 
the goods have to match the sample or model, except to the degree that any differences between the sample slash model and the supplied goods have been brought to the attention of the consumer before the contract is concluded. This next part I don't think is in section 14. Goods sold by sample must also be free from any defect which renders them unsatisfactory that a reasonable examination of a sample would not disclose. That's not applicable to section 14, that the goods will match a model provided. Section 16 states that where goods are supplied alongside digital content, the goods are not to be deemed to conform with a contract if the digital content doesn't itself conform with the contract. So even if the physical goods are completely as required by the contract, if digital, digital content is included as part of the contract and the digital content does not conform to the requirements of the contract, the goods are also deemed to not be in compliance. So here are the remedies if any of the things that I've just described are breached. The consumer has the right to reject the goods within 30 days of the contract in return for a refund, which the trader must pay within 14 days. The reasonable costs of returning the goods to the trader have to be paid by the trader. The consumer also has a right to a repair or replacement of a defective goods within a reasonable time and without significant inconvenience, with any necessary costs in doing so to be paid by the trader. Repair or replacement doesn't mean to make as new, it means to repair or replace up to the standard required in order to remedy the breach of the act. Now, if the previous two remedies would be unreasonable or disproportionate for the trader to have to agree to, the consumer has alternate rights. They have the right to a price reduction by an appropriate amount depending on what the breach is which can include the full price, essentially meaning that they're getting the goods for free, perfectly legally, or they can exercise a final right of rejection. The trader is entitled, however, to make deductions from the amount they have to refund the consumer in order to take account of any use the consumer has been allowed to make of the goods. But, if it is exercised within six months of delivery by the consumer, they can't make those deductions because it's considered that the consumer hasn't had enough use. If it breaks down to such a degree within six months, essentially, the consumer has been given a wholly inappropriate good as part of a contract and therefore the trader isn't entitled to uh, profit from having provided something which is so contrary to consumer rights. Section 17, the trader must have the right to actually supply the goods. So in other words, they have to ensure that if they're going to sell it to a consumer, that the consumer isn't going to be chased by 
the owner of the goods. They've got to ensure that if they're going to pass ownership, they have a legal right to pass ownership. Or if they're going to whatever title to the goods they're going to pass, they have to have a legal right to pass. The onus is on them to ensure that. So contracts between traders and consumers include a term that the trader has the right to sell or supply the goods when ownership is to be transferred to the consumer. The consumer is supposed to enjoy the right to quiet possession of the goods, quiet possession in the sense that no one will disturb them in trying to enjoy it. No one will come chasing them for the goods to try and take it off them. The goods, therefore, need to either be free from any charges or encumbrances at the time the contract is made, or if it is going to be subject to a charge or encumbrance, the trader must, at the very least, make the consumer aware of them prior to the contract. If they fail to do so, then they have breached Section 17. Section 25 deals with issues where the quantity of the contract and the quantity of the goods supplied don't match. If the trader delivers fewer items than the contract requires, the consumer has a right to reject the goods or accept the goods and also accept to pay at the contractual rate. So if, for instance, they're buying um, 100 at a price of £10, but they only get 50 then they pay for that 50 at £10, they only have to pay the £500, because uh, that's all they got. Where the trader delivers more, the consumer is entitled to take the goods that he contracted to buy and reject the excess, to reject the whole amount and essentially just refuse the contract altogether, or accept the contractual sum and the excess amount and pay the contract rate for them all. So in that case, if they're buying 100 and they get 150 at 10, they pay the 10 pounds, um, paying 1,500. Section 28 is for delivery. Unless otherwise agreed, the contract is presumed to include terms that the trader will deliver the goods without an undue delay and in any event no more than 30 days after the contract is concluded. If the trader refuses to deliver the goods or an essential time limit is made known to the trader and isn't complied with, the consumer is entitled to treat the contract as at an end or give a new, rate, sorry, new date for delivery and that delivery date will be an essential term of a contract. If that isn't complied with, the consumer once again has the right to cancel the contract. You get, um, contrary to established advice, if you really want a delivery and you chase it up, only do that if you don't want to cancel the contract. Because if you call them up and ask, where is my, pro where is my product, then you're essentially indicating that you still want it. And you will lose your right to reject the goods and cancel the contract. Every time you chase it up, you're essentially giving the trader a reasonable time 
to deliver the goods again you're essentially extending the deadline without them having to do anything so if you want to cancel the contract you need to give a deadline and make that an essential term of the contract and if it's not delivered by that time you have to exercise your right don't keep chasing it up if the contract is brought to an end the trader must reimburse all payments made to them without undue delay section 29 the passing of risk so in order to explain what risk is um if i were to buy a tv from an electronics uh merchant and ask them to deliver it to me later the risk at the time as it says there the risk in the goods passes only when the goods come into the physical possession of the consumer or a person nominated to take possession of them because i'm not in physical possession of the goods the risk is on the trader so if they were to pick it up and drop it smashing it so that the tv is completely broken they have the risk and i don't so it's bad luck them not bad luck me the goods were at their risk and they're the ones who have to accept the loss they've lost a tv that they could have sold they still owe me a tv as part of the contract they are the ones who have to bear the loss on the tv breaking counterpoint if they do give it to me my physical possession so i carry it out with me and just as i get into the car park i drop it and it smashes i'm in physical possession the risk was passed to me i'm out of luck although the trader might most likely while well, they have sufficient revenue to do so agree to replace it just for the sake of customer goodwill but that is a legal rule who has the risk bears a loss if a loss is incurred the exception to the general rule before is if the consumer commissions the carrier not named as an option by the trader with the carrier supposed to deliver the goods in this case risk passes when the goods are delivered to that carrier for carrier for the carrier sorry to deliver the goods to the consumer now risk obviously is about bearing loss but where carriers are involved just because it's at the risk of either trader or consumer doesn't mean you don't have a claim against the carrier if they do something wrong when it's at your risk you might not have a case against the trader or consumer depending on whichever one you are but you might have a case against that carrier if they're at fault for the loss and you're entitled perfectly entitled to sue them for having caused the loss so although technically you have to bear the loss since it's the carrier's fault they have to reimburse you for that loss meaning you don't actually make a loss i'd like to move on so i don't say loss anymore section 31 liability that cannot be excluded or restricted in the contract none of the previously mentioned consumer rights in this video 
except the Section 25 right regarding quantity can be excluded or restricted in the contract. So a trader can exclude the consumer rights that the correct quantity is delivered. They can, weird, this is actually weird in my opinion, but maybe you disagree. They can actually put in the contract, we may deliver less or more than we actually agreed to. They can vary that, but also the rights of if we deliver more, you have to send us the excess back. Obviously, if they exclude the right to accept what they've contracted to sell, that's a nullity because they're essentially contradicting their own contract. But it, section, the Section 25 right regarding quantity can be excluded or restricted. Any term of a contract that purports to exclude or restrict any of the other rights, however, cannot bind the consumer. Now that's very important. It binds the trader, but not the consumer. So if it includes other terms that are to the trader's detriment, the consumer is off the hook because it doesn't bind him whatsoever under section 31. The trader, however, still has to bear that detriment it's not the whole article won't be void it's only void against the consumer the trader cannot enforce it against the consumer the consumer can enforce it against the trader it's important to note however that an arbitration clause or an agreement to undergo arbitration doesn't restrict or exclude liability the courts actually encourage alternative dispute resolutions such as arbitration because otherwise you have a lot of cases clogging up court time and it can get very expensive. They'd prefer arbitration. So sections 33 to 36 and section 41, digital goods. Now, the Sale of Goods Act, as I mentioned earlier, because it was from 1979, didn't really take into account digital goods. I mean, there were still a few years of floppy disks. That's how far back you have to go. So the sort of digital goods I'm more familiar with were not just a pipe dream, they were a Super Mario pipe dream. I don't know whether to feel shocked or horrified at myself for what I've just said. Digital content must be of satisfactory quality, fit for purpose, as described in a trader must have the right to supply them. So all of the uh, consumer rights over physical goods that I've previously described have a mirror in these sections. With the exception of quantity, I think, because the digital goods are a bit stickier in that respect. They cause a bit of problem because they're not physically available. But these terms will apply if the consumer pays a price for that digital content, if the digital content is provided for free, but along with goods, services, or other digital content for which the consumer does pay a price, or the digital good is generally unavailable to consumers unless they pay a price for it, or it is provided along with goods, services, or other digital content. So essentially, to summarize, 
unless it's completely given for free and not as part of any package. These provisions apply to the supply of digital goods too. It doesn't apply to a gift. Section 47. Liability that cannot be excluded or restricted for digital goods. So the following terms cannot be varied if the variation excludes or limits the ability. Liability of the trader for the goods being of satisfactory quality, fit for purpose, as described within their rights to supply. Any such variation doesn't bind a consumer exactly as it is for physical goods. But another important term, which doesn't really fit into this, but I think has to be discussed, section 65, terms purporting to exclude liability and negligence. A trader cannot incorporate a term into a contract that will exclude or restrict liability for death or personal injury arising from negligence. It's a huge no-no. If they put it in, it's out. No judge in England or Wales is going to let that slide. Where a term or consumer notice purports to exclude or limit the liability of a trader for negligence, this is general negligence, not liability for death or personal injury. This is just negligence in general. The consumer is not treated as voluntarily consenting to the risk of negligence simply because they knew about the term or agreed to it having known about the term or just agreed just because they signed the contract essentially doesn't mean they agree to the risk of the negligence. Obviously this is very important for consumer protection. A trader can't just sling it into a contract and run roughshod over a consumer by being negligent and careless in going about their trade because the law will simply not allow it. So that's the key parts of the Consumer Rights Act and the most important parts of consumer protection. I hope it's been helpful. I hope you enjoyed this and please like, share and subscribe and see you next week. Thank you.